you have your Bibles tonight and you would, find 2 Timothy. We are going through the book of 2 Timothy. And uh, just a little update tonight. At the end of service, don't, don't run out. We have two baptisms this evening. And uh, so give me some time during the uh, invitation to change and to go um, out and get uh, one of the individuals. And uh, you will be blessed for staying. And you decided you're going to stay, say amen. amen. They're going to bring all the kids in here. So if you've got kids, you can't leave anyway. All right. So, amen. So, if you were to go on vacation and you had a pet and you told someone the instructions of how to care for that pet, you'd tell them you need to water them on this day, you need to feed them on this day, because why? You want it to stay alive. If you were on your deathbed and you were trying to tell the people that you were leaving here, this is where this account is, this is where this password is, this is the PIN number to the bank, it is because you would want them to have the blessing that you are leaving them financially or if you were leaving them a piece of property, you want them to know where the deed is, where all the things that it would require for them to be the owner. And when we see 2 Timothy, Paul was writing this last letter, leaving Timothy with the keys to what it was going to take for the church. These churches that Paul and Timothy had labored in, had cared for, had wept over, had suffered for, what was the blueprint so that they could continue to operate in a pleasing way to the Lord? How could they take ownership of what God had entrusted to them and to serve faithfully? And you say, well, Jake, um, this church was 2,000 years ago, and it's not the same as today. The church is the same. It might look a little different. The facilities might be a little different. The music might be a little different. But there are two things in the church that have never changed. The first is the Lord, and that people are sinful. You say, well, Jake, we're not as sinful as they were. Don't lie to yourself. We sin, we fall short, we struggle. And so tonight when we look through chapter 3, I want you to see this because in chapter 2 it ended up talking about why we defend the faith. Why the people of God stand up to do what is right because it ends up there because some people will repent. Some people who are in the church, who claim to be believers, who have gone astray, can be turned back. This letter is not written to people outside of the church. It is to people who claim to be the church. And so the problems that are going on in this letter are about people in the church, not people out of the church. I want you to hear that tonight because when you hear some of these traits, you're going to think, not this guy, not this lady. That has to be someone else, other people, other situations, but it's not. And the very same thing we looked at this morning is very much a lot of what we'll look at tonight. And you say, Jake, are you just preaching the same sermons? No, apparently we've got some issues that God is trying to fix. Or some things that are going to be coming down the pipe that God wants us to be prepared for. And so I cannot caution you enough about not heeding the warning tonight. Because what he's talking about is people who will come into the church who do not love God who do not care about God, who find positions of influence and will be used by Satan to tear a church apart. 
And tonight, what does it require for Satan to be allowed to bring in people to the church to destroy what God is doing? The people of God doing nothing. The people of God saying, it's not my fight. It's not my issue. It's not my battle. It's not my concern. In Matthew chapter 7, I want to read you Jesus' words about false prophets, false preachers, false teachers, those who come into the church but are not of the church. In Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 15, Jesus says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, so every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. Pray with me tonight. Father, we come opening your word, allowing it through the power of your spirit to convict and deal and work. Lord, I pray tonight that your Holy Spirit would implant what needs to be implanted, would root out what needs to be rooted out. Conviction, Lord, that you would be at work in this place tonight. We thank you for all you're doing. And Lord, I pray that if there's anything in my heart or life that would grieve or quench your spirit, that you would forgive me. And I ask it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Now tonight you might be thinking, well, I disagreed with a person. Or I disagreed with a pastor. Or I disagreed with a deacon. They must be a false prophet. That's not what it says. You can disagree with people in church and still both love Jesus. You can have different ways of doing things in church and still love Jesus. But tonight, what are we talking about and what must this church be on guard for? What must you stand on the wall and be the watchman that God has called you to do? Well, tonight we're going to look at what these false people will look like. Starting in verse 5, in verses 1 through 5, we get a long list. And you say, Jake, are you going to go through the list? You bet I am. And the reason is this, because some of us struggle with these issues. You say, well, I've got a little bit of that in me. Well, tonight the question is, will you let God get it out of you or will you let it spread? Will you let it fester? Will one of these days you go from just being someone who is struggling to sin to someone that Satan is using? There's a difference. You can sit in these seats and struggle with an issue, whether it's lust or pride or, or whatever the sin is, and it can be your battle that God is dealing with you on, convicting you on. But friends, if you don't give it to Him, it'll spread. It'll grow. And you go from being someone who is at war with yourself and the struggle that you have to someone that Satan can use to destroy a family, to destroy a church, to destroy a ministry. And so we're just going to jump in and love the Word of God. But know this. Paul says, Timothy, it's not a question of if, it's when. You've got to put your big boy pants on. Prepare for it. Be on guard. But know this. It's a guarantee. You say, not our church. We're, we're above the fray. No, we're not. My family's above the fray. I can live with my sin. No. Paul says, know 
this, that in the last days, perilous times will come. That last days can be an extreme time. That can mean any time as we get closer and closer to the Lord calling us home. We're living in last days. And so we should expect this to be happening inside of the church and outside of the church. What we see here is the world is going to influence the church mightily. And we, through the power of the Holy Spirit, are called to push back, to make a stand, to be the influence that God would have us to be. And so in verse 2, for men or mankind, not just the gender, will be lovers of themselves. What that word means there is loving oneself more than anything else. It means selfish. It means when you come to church, and church is all about you, or what you can be in charge of, or what your opinion is, or what your feelings are, and you matter more than anybody else, you have taken on the first quality of a false believer. The second thing we see here is lovers of money. And this lovers of money means what it is, that money is more important to you than the things of God. What you can accumulate, the treasures that you can store up on this earth, are more important than God using the blessings He's given you to expand His kingdom. And you know what really could be said? Every other issue that we will look at is just a result of selfishness. Every bit of it is when I am more important than what God wants from me. And so we see here lovers of self, lovers of money, boasters. That means when you are an imposter. That means when everything you talk about is greater than when you actually did. It's this idea that I have to impress others. And so we see here that we're more important than others. We want more than others. And we want people to think highly of us even though we do not deserve it. Friends, you have to understand something as a Christian. You are a sinner. God loves you regardless of that sin. And you have to live in that realization that I don't deserve God's love. I couldn't earn God's love, but He loves me anyway. And there's nothing you can do to make God love you more. He can't love you differently. If you are His, you're His. If you're in the palm of His hand, you're in the palm of His hand. If you're in the Lamb's book of life, you're in the Lamb's book of life. His love for you does not vary based on your success or failures. God is love. And the Bible tells us that Christ died for the ungodly. He loved you in your mess. He loved you in your sin and your shame and your brokenness. He died for you knowing your baggage. And He says, all I ask of you is humility. He goes on and says, proud. This again is another way of saying loving yourself, but it even says that you love yourself more than others arrogantly. You are arrogant about the fact that you are lying about what God is doing in you. You say, well, what's the difference? It means that it's not enough just to brag about what you're doing, that you're not doing. It's not just about loving yourself more than others. It is not caring that other people know the truth. You ever met someone like that? that will lie even though you were sitting there next to them. They don't care. And what happens is we see that this has entered into the church. 
blasphemers. This word means a reviler, one who speaks evil of what God is doing. You see, we see this nature here that it's all about me. It's all about my kingdom. It's all about my ideas. It's all about my wealth. It's all about what I can do. It means the focus becomes on a person and not God. It's when a church begins to revolve around a personality. Sometimes it happens in the preacher. Sometimes it happens in the music. Sometimes it happens with the biggest giver. Sometimes it happens with the people who have the most influence. But what we see here is this attitude is always going to be trying to sneak into the church. Why? Because let's be honest. It is a place where we celebrate what people can do. It happens in the world. It happens in everything. It's in business. It is no different Because when we stop being led by the Spirit of God, we begin to put success in a worldly term. How many people were here on Sunday morning? How many people have we baptized this year? How big are the offerings? Not how many marriages have been saved. How many lives have been changed. How many children woke up after their mom and dad have been saved and they've got a new mom and a new dad. When, When was the last time someone was kind and compassionate to that person who sits alone? You see, we begin to receive our success and accolades based on what the world says instead of what God says. But it goes on and it adds one here that's very, very out of place. Because when you listen to this list, it sounds like it's adults, right? These are mostly adult issues. But then it says disobedient to parents. You say, well, there it is. Good. Little kids ought to listen. But I don't believe that's how the Bible works. I don't believe God speaks to adults, 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 throws a kid in there and goes back to adults, adults, adults. I believe this is talking about adults who are grown, who have living parents. You should honor them. You say, you mean i got to listen to my adult parents as long as they don't ask you to sin or do something wrong? You ought to respect them with reverence and honor and obedience when possible. You say, well, that doesn't go over very well. I don't care if it does or not. That's what it says. I can make my kids mine. I can bend them over and spank them. I don't think my mom's going to try that on me, though. I hope she doesn't. It'd be embarrassing for everybody. But what he says is that attitude of rebellion, that attitude of selfishness. And how do we know that's the case? Because what does the Bible tell us? To not take care of our loved ones who are aging is to be worse than a what? Infidel. I believe it is when you become too selfish to care for your parents when they become in a place in life when they need you. When you should be for them there at the nursing home. You should be there with them when they're not able to feed themselves. You should be there for them when they need to go to the doctor. You're supposed to honor them in the years that they cannot honor themselves like they did when you couldn't care for yourself. You say, well, Jake, that's just not how the world operates, but it's how the church should operate. The Bible tells us, if you remember, that the church is to take care of true widows. What is a true widow? Someone who doesn't have family to care for them. You see, the responsibility of us caring for our aging parents falls right here on us. You say, well, I don't like my parents. My parents aren't Christians. My parents weren't good to me. My parents didn't take care of me. Look up here. Look up here well. It doesn't matter. It's my job to honor them, to pray for them, to be there for them, to care for them. 
This idea that I'm willing to sacrifice for them. It's not about me. It's not about what I can get from them. It's not about just waiting for them to kick the bucket so I can get the truck or the house or the car or, or the land or what. No! That God has granted me with the privilege of having parents and having the privilege of caring for them to honor them. He goes on and says, unthankful. This is this idea that whatever God has given you, you just don't care. You're not thankful for it. You're ungrateful for what God has given you. It goes on and says what? Unholy. This idea that we're living openly in sin and that it doesn't matter. And so all of verse 2 could be titled, Don't be selfish. It's not about you. It's not about what you can achieve. It's not about what you have. And this idea of selfishness, let's be honest, has seeped into the church. The sermon's too long. The music's might not type. The temperature's not too right. The classroom's too small. This is going on. I didn't get what I wanted. This selfishness cannot be the mark of the Lord's church. And then it goes from what we shouldn't be to some of the attitudes that we should have toward one another. Starting in verse 3. We're not going to skip any of them. Just bear with me. Unloving. We are to be like the Lord. We are to love one another. Is this a church that is marked by a genuine love for one another? That you care about each other. That you care about when people are gone, when their family is going through hardship, when they're struggling. Do you genuinely love them because you believe that God has them here for a reason? That God has brought them together and put us all together with all of our quirks and all of our failures and all of our shortcomings and all the baggage that we bring. But there is no accidents. God has you here for a reason. God has each other here for a reason. It goes on and says unforgiving. You see, this is the one place in the world that forgiveness should be ample. You say, well, Jake, they said something about me. Forgive them anyway. You say, Jake, they wronged me. Forgive them anyway. Jake, they told a rumor. Forgive them anyway. There is never a bad time to forgive. There is never a time when you'll be going through something and you have to ask yourself, should I forgive or not? The question is always, forgive. You say, well, what if God just stop? There is never a but at the end of forgiveness. He says, forgive if I have forgiven you. I'm thankful that God has forgiven me from everything. I'm thankful that God forgives me when I fail in the same areas that I failed before. I'm glad I didn't say, Jake, the first time you lost your, your temper, that's a forgiveness, but from now on, you're guilty. Or, Jake, that time that your pride got the best of you, I'll forgive you one time, but after that, it's over. Jesus said when asked by the disciples, how often should I forgive? Seven times 70. Infinite. As many times as the world hurts you, as people fail you, as struggles happen, you must forgive. But I hope you notice that all of these build. It started with unloving. That means you don't forgive. But then it goes to what? Slanderers. You see, when we're hurt and we don't forgive, guess what happens? Diarrhea of the mouth. You say, I don't like that terminology. Well, I don't like listening to it. And I don't like doing it, but it happens. When the unforgiveness in our heart, when the unlovingness toward one another, we don't care how we hurt. We don't care what we say. 
I don't even care if they hear it. We begin to not care about the reputations of the people we worship with. This word can mean malicious gossip or falsely accusing. You say, what if it's not false? It's still slandering because it never should have been said in the first place. Now, this is where the halos come out because everyone's like, well, I would never talk about anyone. You are a liar. Every single one of us is guilty of being a slanderer. Even in the way we say things. What do you think about so-and-so? Oh, oh, I'm not going to say nothing about them, but what a blessing. You've slandered them. Now that person has left that conversation thinking, boy, I wonder what they did to them. We're guilty of it. This is not a list of perfection. It is a list of warning that God is telling us through the Apostle Paul that we've got to be on guard. That when we see these issues come up in our heart, when we see them come up in our life, that we've got to get rid of them. It goes on without self-control. Now think about it. You've unloved. You've not forgiven. You've started slandering. And now there's no control to stop it. The ball just gets rolling and rolling and rolling. He is giving us these warnings of where you're going to be if it doesn't stop. That, that it goes for the pastor, it goes for the deacons, it goes for the Sunday school teacher, it goes for the Christmas and Easter people, whoever you are. He's telling us that this is going to fall out of control. And it goes on and you can see it, it says brutal. This word is used of an animal that is not tame. And so it starts when you don't love people. It leads to then you don't forgive people. Then it leads to what? You slander people. Then you know no bounds of when to stop. And you become like a wild animal. You know the thing about wild animals? They don't just kill one thing. They'll get in your chicken house and kill what? All of them. And what he says here is when your heart becomes this way, when you begin to be used by Satan, you will not just destroy the person you've got a problem with, you will tear the church Heart. If you've been around long enough to watch churches, this is exactly how it happens. One pastor couldn't get along with one deacon. One deacon family couldn't get along with another deacon family. One Sunday school teacher couldn't get along with another Sunday school teacher. One family got big enough to outvote everybody else. And what happens is they end up devouring themselves. And by the time they're done, they look around and there's nobody left. Only the people that have to love them or the people that are too stubborn to leave no matter what happens. And you say, well, Jake, how did, how did churches not avoid this? We don't know God's word. And so we'll go on, and then it says, despisers of good. You will get to a point that you are so bitter, so destructive, so overwhelmed, that even good things won't be enough. What does that look like? I'll give you an example. If it hits close to home, you can fire me at any point, all right? I know people who cannot rejoice when someone gets saved in the church that they go to because they hate the pastor so much that it's like he's succeeding. You say, what's the stupidest thing I ever heard? I don't disagree with you, but I've heard it here. Oh, ain't that terrible? Someone new is coming to church. The offering's up. Things are going well. We'll just never be able to get rid of them now. I didn't hear that here. I'll just be honest with you. 
But why even good things can't be celebrated? Because such a hatred, such an unforgiveness, such a desire for my selfishness and what I want. Listen, if you want to brag on Jamie singing, get after it. Why? Because we're blessed. But I know pastors that hate their music ministers and music ministers that hate their pastors. I know pianists that hate their guitarists and the guitarist who hates the pianist. Why? Because they get more recognition than I do. They get more praise than I do. And it can happen in committees. I always say it and I'll say it for as long as I'm here. My favorite committee, far above anything else, is the Funeral Mill Kitchen. Funeral Kitchen Committee Meal. That's my favorite one. The food they cook is unlike anything I've ever eaten before. I love it. I love not only the food that they feed, but the fact that the ministry that they have, when people have lost a loved one in that moment, they are usually the most impressionable with the love of Jesus. In that moment, that's why I think it's such a special one. It doesn't mean the other ones aren't good. I wish we didn't have some of the other ones, but that's a whole other sermon for a whole other day. That one's going to cost me. But that's okay. And we have to be okay with that. However God made me, wherever God has me, whatever God is using me for, it doesn't matter the earthly recognition. It doesn't matter the earthly praise. It doesn't matter what you say. It matters what He says. I always tell everybody on Wednesday night, if you want to hear me teach Revelation, you come. If you want to hear someone good teach it, listen to David Jeremiah. I'm okay with that when you come up and say, hey, we're going to go see David Jeremiah. I'm like, can I go with you? I'm okay with that. You have to get to a place where being used by God and seeing others be used by God doesn't destroy you. All right, it doesn't get any better, so just bear down with me. Traitors. It means treachery, betrayal. You see, when selfishness takes over and you run through this list of characters, you'll do whatever it takes whatever the cost, hurt whoever it matters to get what you want. Friends, you've seen it. You've seen people that would do whatever it took to get what they wanted regardless of who they hurt, who they destroyed, who they ruined. And then it goes on and says headstrong. This means a reckless falling forward. That means I'm going to go ahead no matter what it is. Think of a bull in a china shop, right? I am going to go through this no matter what it takes, no matter who it hurts, no matter who it damages. It goes on and says haughty. That word for haughty means conceited and foolish. That means that you do not think that anybody can stop you. The Lord or others. That's when you decide to destroy a church, destroy a family, destroy a marriage and think there's no one that can hold me accountable. And this last one, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. What it means is my desires are the most important thing to me and no one else matters. The the picture that we have of this is when someone is addicted to drugs. There's nothing they can do about it. They've been in and out of rehab, but yet the addiction continues to destroy them. Their parents have paid for their rehab. They've paid for their legal fees. They've paid for them to to, to get a new house, a new job. They've done everything they possibly could to save this person. 
but yet the desire just keeps taking over. When we look at a situation like that, it breaks our heart. It breaks our heart for the parents. It breaks our heart for the families. It breaks our hearts for the children. We look at that and think, what a self-destructing situation. And God looks down at His church and says, if this is how you operate, this is how it becomes. My prayer is that we never get there. My prayer is that that becomes my heart, that the Lord smites me standing here. Why? Because when it gets like that, you're not going to see things like we saw today. You're not going to see people saved, people baptized, lives changed, prayers answered, God at work. Why? Because look at verse 5. Having a form of godliness but denying its power, and from such people turn away. The power of God's gone. You want to know why churches are dying? It's not got nothing to do with the music. It has nothing to do with the preachers. It is the fact that God's people, including the pastors, have devoured each other for years. Fought and argued and split and couldn't get along. And then we look at God and say, bless the mess. And God says, no. My power is not going to be on display there. And friends, that's the scariest thought when I stand behind this desk. Is God, if your power is not here. That's the scariest thing when I think about Jamie leading the singing. The choir singing. If the power of God is not here. You know why that is? Because that means God's presence and favor is not here. God's all places at all times, we know that. But friends, if you don't think that there's something special about God's people gathering and worshiping Him and singing to Him and honoring Him and praising Him and praying Him and praying to Him, you're mistaken. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And friends, we have to know something. If we want God to be at work in this place, He can work in spite of us. But I promise you, if we're stubborn long enough, He'll work somewhere else. And whose responsibility is it to be on guard? Yours. Mine. It's not the new family that's been here two weeks. It's not that new family that just got saved. It is you. The backbone of this church. The ones that have been committed. The ones that have served. The ones that have been faithful. The ones who have stood on the wall for years. Don't abandon your post. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, starting in verses 1 and 2, the Bible says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. Now I've got two more points, but I'm going to go as fast as I can. They're short, okay? False teachers will be on a wicked mission. These people that were just described in verses 1 through 5 are not going to sit quietly. They're not going to sit and watch everything go well. They're going to get involved. They're going to start serving. They're going to start asking for recognition. Look what it says in verses 6 and 7. For of this sort, that's the people who he just described, are those who creep into households and make captive of gullible women, loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now all some of you heard was gullible woman, so just bear with me, all right? 
What it means is this captive is this idea of take someone and lead them astray. Well, how that works is this. It starts with kindness. It starts with influence. It starts with buttering someone up. Building a relationship with them on false pretenses so that when they understand their burdens, they can lead them astray. Now, why is it, say, women here? Well, let's just be clear. Why? Because many of the women in the early church were unmarried. Their husbands did not want anything to do with the faith. We've seen that. And so what would happen is a false teacher would come in and he would build the trust of a woman who was under, not under the protection and authority of her husband, which the Bible teaches is clearly true. Adam was responsible for Eve. You are responsible for your wives to protect them and love them and nurture them and care for them. And so they would teach these the law, this, 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 this false teaching, and they would find out their sins. And then they would say something like, well, you know, the Apostle Paul is preaching against this sin, but you struggle with it. I don't think you should feel bad at all. I think that's just how God made you. I think you need to keep that sin. Don't you worry about what Paul says. You follow me, and I won't preach against it. It says, weighted down with sin. They wanted to know their shortcomings and failures and faults so they could use them to tell them, you're not really very sinful. It's kind of like the man on television that smiles all the time. Stands in front of the biggest congregation in all of America and just smiles and he smiles. I got a crooked teeth. I can't smile like that, all right? And he tells them it's not a sin. It's not wrong. Follow me. You'll be fine. Friends, be very careful when someone wants to whisper in your ear, wants to find you when you're not around others, wants to begin to try to put things in your mind. Romans 16 describes it like this. Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned and avoid them. For those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ but their own belly and by smooth words and flattering speech deceive the hearts of the simple. For your obedience has become known to all, therefore I am glad on your behalf, but I want you to be wise in what is good and simple concerning evil, and the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. He says, when God's blessing you, and you're doing good, and you're following God, and everything seems to be right when you're obeying God, and you've never been better, that's when He comes. When you least expect it. When everything seems right. When you finally started coming back to Sunday nights. When you finally started having that nightly devotion as a family. When you finally got along with God and got rid of that sin. When your kids finally started wanting to come to church. When you finally got things where you feel like you're honoring God and obeying God and following Him and you're pleasing Him. In that moment, Satan will begin to influence hearts to trip you up. Friends, count it all joy when you fall into various trials and tribulations. Look up here. I have never in my entire life watched someone start a rumor, try to destroy this church, and say, Lord, thank you. I have always thrown a pity party. Every single time. But friends, know this. Be on guard for it. As a church, you need to know something. People are not joining sinking ships. 
This is going to be good. Just wait with me. False teachers join ships that seem to be going somewhere because no one wants to captain a sinking ship. But everyone wants to be in charge when it glitters, when it sparkles, when it seems to be going well. That's when people want in. And so when we look at all God's done for us, we should thank Him, we should celebrate Him, but we should be more on guard now than at ever before. You say, Jake, I want to see people saved and baptized every week. I do too, but you better commit to something that I'll be a watchman while it's happening. That I'll be on guard in the blessings. That I'll be prepared in the bounty. The third and final thing, and I'll be done. All right. False teachers will be dealt with by God. Don't miss this because this sermon's pretty discouraging if you're just listening to it. But don't lose hope because God is not fooled. God has not abandoned His throne, and God has not left His church. God has not abandoned His bride. Look what it says in verses 8 and 9. Now as Janus and Jambres resisted Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds disapproved concerning the faith, but they will progress no farther, for the folly will be manifest to all, as theirs also was. Most Bible scholars believe these were two false prophets, probably two people who were involved in Pharaoh's magicians, who when the children of Israel left, jumped on board and said, we want to be a part of this, we want to be doing this, but yet never truly worshiped God. And throughout the wilderness, throughout all of the difficulties, they were always there planning in the people's ear. It was better in Egypt. Why are you following Moses? He's led us out here in the mess. And Jewish tradition teaches us that when God got involved in Exodus 32 for the calf worship and idol worship, that these two individuals were smited by the Lord. And friends, all I can tell you today is, is God might give you some chain to run on, but eventually He will pull the rope. And as a church, as an individual, as a pastor, I need to always remember that I might get away with something for a season, I might go astray for a time, but at some point God says, enough's enough. God will fight your battles for you. Church, you might think that you can't stand, that you, might, you can't endure, that you can't persevere, but never forget, God has a point where He says you shall go no farther. That's what we pray for. God, protect us. God, provide for us. God, give us discernment. God, raise us up people who know your word, who will stand on your word, who will declare your word. I have two examples, and I'm going to close. 1 Samuel chapter 22, Eli was a very old man. He was the judge at this time. And listen to what it says. Now Eli was very old and he heard everything his sons did to all Israel. How they lay with women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. They were sleeping with them in the lobby of the church. Eli's two sons. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. No, my sons, for it is not good report that I hear. You make the Lord's people transgress. If one man sins against another, God will judge him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who will intercede for him? Nevertheless, they did not heed the voice of their father because the Lord desired to kill them. God had said, You've went too far. You've done too much. The punishment is death. 
Eli's two sons did not take over as judgeship, but a young man by the name of Samuel was raised up. Samuel judged Israel godly. He was a man who God used in a mighty way, but at the end of his life, something happened to him. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, it says, Now it came to pass when Samuel was old that he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of the firstborn was Joel. There's just something about that name. And I'm just kidding. If your name's Joel, I'm sorry. And the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain, took bribes, and perverted justice. Neither one of these men, children, received the promise that God had for them. But God says enough's enough. Eli, you can't let your sons rule. Samuel, I'm not going to let your sons rule. Why? Because their wickedness was harming God's people. And as a pastor, as I pray for you, that is the number one way that I pray. God, I'm going to fail this congregation. God, I'm going to do things that aren't right. But never let me have an attitude of I want to harm the sheep. Because friends, God will not tolerate it from anyone long. It's His church. It's His bride. It's His people. And He loves us. God loves this group of people. God has a purpose for this group of people. God wants to use you for greater things than I believe we could ever comprehend if we'll just let Him. And friends, we need to know that Satan does not want that. There is a spiritual battle going on. God wants this church to collapse, to fall apart, to split, for people to drive by and say, look at that big building with so few cars on a Sunday morning. You know how I know that? Because I drive by other churches and say the same thing. Isn't it so heartbreaking for all those facilities and nobody there? But that's not what God wants for you. No matter if it's me, whoever it is standing behind this desk, this congregation is the Lord's bride. And He loves you. And He wants to use you if you'll just let Him. Tonight, my request for you is to get along with God and say, Lord, how can you use me? Lord, is there anything in my life that shouldn't be here? And third, God, help me to be a watchman, to stand on the wall and do what you've asked me to do. Tonight, if you're here and you're not a Christian, though, none of this makes any sense. But it can. Jesus loves you. He died for you. He wants you to be a part of His family. But you've got to turn from your sins and trust Him. Father, I thank You so much for Your Word. Lord, it's not mine, it's Yours. Verse by verse, word by word. Lord, I know it's not easy. I know it's not pleasant. But God, You've promised the blessing of Your Word. You've promised that it would not return void. You've promised, Lord. And I'm trusting You in that promise tonight. Father, forgive me. Help me not to be a false prophet, a false wolf in a sheep's clothing. Lord, show us the areas to forgive. Show us the areas to stand. Lord, show us the landmines ahead. That the future can be better than it's ever been before. And that it's all for your glory. And Lord, I ask it all in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.